are listening to Expand Your Horizons, the podcast for English language teachers and wanderlust indulgers. This is Lauren and Shannon, teacher training duo of TefelHorizons.com. Each week, we bring you teaching advice, travel tips, and inspiring stories from around the globe. Here's to making this big world a little smaller by connecting ESL teachers everywhere. and welcome to this week's episode of Expand Your Horizons. I am here recording in Boston with Lauren. Hi. And this week we are excited to talk to you about some classroom management techniques. Always helpful to refresh, even if it's something you feel pretty comfortable about already. Um, But we think a lot about classroom management, obviously. Um, And so this week we wanted to talk to you about our best strategies for managing your ESL classroom effectively. So anytime we talk about classroom management, I think there's one really important place we need to start. And Lauren, what would you say that is? I think that uh, a really important place to start when talking about classroom management is talking about the task cycle. Um, Other resources might refer to it as uh, the micro stages of a lesson, the the smaller stages within a stage of the lesson. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, so we might enter, like, we might, uh, <laughs> might use them interchangeably. Thank you. I couldn't think of the word. I am losing my mind today. We might use okay. those terms interchangeably. Wow. Uh, we got this. Yep. Um, we might, um, but they mean the same thing. Um, I think I tend to say task cycle more than micro stages. Yeah. Same thing. And if you have been following us for a little while now, if you've um, been a recipient of the last, I want to say, five-ish newsletters, then you've actually heard about the task cycle or this idea of microstages already. So you've gotten at least an overview. Um, But that is definitely where I think we want to start with classroom management. And if you're not familiar with this idea of microstages or what is called the task cycle, it's basically a way of breaking up different activities. So basically breaking up each activity you do into these different smaller steps and the reason we do this is so that we can we can make every activity more student-centered so without the task cycle what ends up happening is everything ends up being the teacher leading the whole class so let's take an activity for example let's say a I don't know vocabulary worksheet right so without the task cycle what that would look like is basically the teacher standing in front of the class after having distributed the worksheet and then just going through each one one by one. Okay, everybody, look at your worksheet. What do you think is the answer to number one? Good, what do you think is the answer to number two? Um, And in doing that, the students don't really get a lot of processing time. Uh, They also don't get any sort of thinking time, collaboration time. The pace tends to drag. The whole lesson just centers around the teacher. And I think as a student, that can be really frustrating. Absolutely. So implementing the task cycle changes all of that. And for me, I would say this might be the single most influential thing I learned when I first embarked on teacher training was this idea of using the task cycle for every activity and just how much that impacts a lesson. Yep. So the task cycle basically consists of four different micro stages. And so again, when we say micro stages, we mean stages within a stage. So let's say, again, you have one stage like... We can talk about the hypothetical vocabulary exercise I just mentioned. Um, Let's say we're giving the students this practice activity on the new vocabulary they've learned. So you've got four different steps that you need to do to work through that whole activity. Um, The first thing you're going to do, obviously, before the students can do anything else is set up the activity, which would involve giving instructions. 
So first thing you, you can do before the students can do anything um, is tell the students what to do, how to do the activity. Right. Uh, the students then should have a chance to work on the activity alone. So that's micro stage number two, is the students work alone on the worksheet. This gives them time to process what they're doing, to think through everything on their own. And I think if you're a student, that is super important that you get this chance to kind of think at your own pace. Um, so it's really important that the students get that time, even if it feels awkward for the teacher, for everything to just be silent while the students are working. Um, the students need that. Then the third step is to let the students talk in pairs. So you just put them in pairs and say, check your answers with your partner. You don't need to be interfering at all in that stage. Um, this is important because one, it increases the amount of interaction in your classroom. Um, two, it helps the students feel more comfortable, more confident in their answers. And three, I think it adds this level of kind of motivation then to have the correct answer confirmed afterwards. So if I'm a student and I got a certain answer to number four on my worksheet, but my partner got a different answer and we're discussing it, now I'm maybe having to think critically about the activity, about my choice, which is helping in my learning. I'm also now really excited to hear what the actual answer is because I want to know if I got it right or if my partner got it right, especially after we've already talked through our reasoning, you know, yeah. why we picked one or the other, right? So this is really essential i think often overlooked in the learning process that students are getting this kind of time to talk through the work that they've done and thinking about why they're choosing particular answers and not just arbitrarily putting things down right. yep. so that's step three and then finally the the fourth step the final step in the task cycle is what is often called whole class feedback which is just a fancy way of saying you go over the answers as a class so this is when now it's teacher fronted again, more teacher fronted usually. And you're asking what's the answer to number one and what's the answer to number two, and then clarifying anything that the students didn't get right. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So every activity should really have this whole task cycle. Um, occasionally, obviously, you're going to have activities where the students don't need to work alone. Like maybe the whole thing is just a pair discussion, in which case it would go right from instructions to talk to your partner right. to whole class feedback. Um, but otherwise there shouldn't ever be any reason to skip any of these stages. Yeah. I think we've worked with trainers in the class too, that have referred to the task cycle as the burger, like a hamburger. Mm -hmm. So if you think of each of those four uh, things that Shannon just talked about as like a, a a piece of the burger right so you've got like the bun on top and then you've got whatever you put on the burger so like either your sauce or your tomatoes or whatever that the <laughs> burger itself <laughs> and then the, the bottom bun um so if if that's another that's another yeah. way that people have referred to it yeah you can think of the instructions as kind of the top bun right, right? then um Either you can think of then the next stage is the burger, like the whole meat of the activity is the students actually sitting there and doing it themselves. Then you've got like the cheese and whatever, the yeah. tomatoes that make it more delicious underneath. That's like the pear check. And then that bottom bun that kind of pulls it all together is the whole class feedback at the end. So nice. if you've ever taken a Celta course, it's very possible you've heard of the micro stage burger or the task cycle burger. Or even <laughs> seen a picture. <laughs> that illustrates it right yeah. and every stage is not complete without a full burger right yeah um so everything else we talk about when we talk about classroom management kind of centers around those so that's how we're structuring each activity within our lesson and then within each of those steps within each of those micro stages there are other techniques that you can be using as a teacher 
to get the most out of each of those steps. Um, So Lauren's going to talk about the first one, which is basically when you're giving instructions, what should you be doing? What classroom management techniques can you implement there to really make the most out of um, that instruction stage? Good. Yeah, I think that uh, when thinking about giving instructions, uh, maybe it's it's useful to think about a time that you gave instructions or you heard instructions given and it was met with like crickets, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and then the teacher's standing in front of the room going, so did anyone understand? Do you know what you're supposed to do? And uh, that, that's a hard, it's a hard position to be in. So we do have techniques to help avoid crickets um, or the opposite, avoid absolute chaos when everyone starts talking at the same time because they don't know what they're supposed to do. So a really good rule of thumb is before you give instructions, do something that we call anchoring. To anchor means to either stand or sit in one place um, while you give your instructions. Uh, The reason we say that is that Um, I don't know if you've ever seen yourself teach, but uh, early on I saw a video of myself in a classroom and I was pacing and I didn't even know I was doing it. And it was so horrifying to see it after. Um, And and, uh, so I realized that I needed I needed to pay. I needed to anchor. Um, And I don't always sit down when I give my instructions. Sometimes I stand, but I anchor by putting like my hand on the back of the chair, sort of just to remind myself to stand still. Mm -hmm. However, I think that sitting down and giving instructions can be a really good attention-getting technique because the students are often used to use to seeing you stand, and so a really great way to get them sort of to to stop, you know, talking and uh, talking to their friends in the class or whatever, and get their attention quickly is to do the opposite of what you all often do, and that's sitting. So I'll say something. I'll sit down and I'll say something like, um, you know, eyes on me or eyes up here. Um, to indicate you know, that they should look at me as I start to give my instructions. Yep. And um, anchoring does matter. I think there's something, um, how do I want to say this? It, it's almost like there's something about pacing that has been romanticized, I feel like, <laughs> in films and lectures. You know, there's like this kind of dead poet society, like yeah. romanticism of the professor, like walking among the desks. Or, yeah, and it's... It, it, somehow that's interacting with the students or something. Um, but I think especially for language learners, like they just want to be able to understand you. Yeah. They just want to understand what you're saying. And if you're pacing around looking at the floor or you're behind them or you're on the other side of the room, that is not helpful in them being able to understand you. So you need to be, I think a good sort of test to know whether you're anchored is, are you standing in a place where you can easily make eye contact with every single student without really having to turn your head. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, let the, you know, let the activity be the thing that they, you know, that they concentrate on, not, you know, not trying to follow you around the classroom as you talk to them. Right. Um, it's, it's distracting. And we want to, we want to remove as many distractions as we can in order to, you know, increase the chances for students to succeed on the task. Yep. Um, yeah, that's really good advice. Uh, the other thing you want to do is as you're um, giving instructions, um, break your instructions down into smaller chunks. Mm, so yeah. as native speakers, we tend to, to speak in, in longer, perhaps more complex sentences. Um, and our students don't need that in their instructions. I'm not saying they'll never get up to that level where they can understand someone speaking in longer, more complex sentences, but your instructions are not the time to teach that. They, yeah. they just need to know what to do as clearly as possible. Um, so remove your sort of verbal <laughs> uh, distractions as well. Shannon's mm-hmm. going to talk to you a little bit more about that. But the reason I bring it up is because 
what you want to be able to do is, um, if you look at your instructions, when I first started teaching, I wrote down my instructions. I scripted them because I tended to be a bit wordy. And then based on what I wrote, I also scripted some questions to ask the students about my instructions before they start the task. Mm -hmm. So we refer to those as ICQs, instruction check questions. And these are questions that check that students have understood the instructions. The question is, it goes beyond, did you understand? Because honestly, asking students if they understood uh, doesn't get give you any information. Right. Like You'll say, oh, did you understand my instructions? Yes, teacher. Or they'll just look at you with a blank stare. So rather than that, you can say, you know, I want you to... Um, do you know, fill in this uh, exercise with the words in the box? Uh, there's one word that you won't use. And then you look at your students for a second, pause, and then say, so do you need to use all of the words? And so then you've engaged them on that level where they have to think about what you just said. So uh, good, a good class and practice is to ask instruction check questions. And you can... Um, you can write those down if you're nervous about sort of asking them off the cuff. I don't tend to either. I can't really think of good ones sometimes without sounding patronizing. Like, are you going to work alone or with your partner? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> well, maybe I, maybe actually I should ask about the actual task itself. Like, do you need to use all the words or, you know, will you have one extra? Right, right. And if, if you're not sure what makes a good instruction check question, think about what about the task might be a little bit tricky or a little bit unexpected. Yeah, like something really straightforward, like match the words, the definition. I think that's when it can get patronizing, where you, yeah. you, know, you give your instructions, okay, on this exercise, please match the word to the definition. So, so <laughs> are you going to match the word to the definition? I mean, yeah. you'll get some eye rolls. But um, think instead about is there anything in this particular task that's maybe not straightforward right. or unexpected? Or like, Correct. Right. The example Lauren gave, you know, if, for, for example, there are five blanks, but eight words in the word right. bank, that could be confusing. Are you yeah. supposed to fill in some of the blanks with two words or what? You know, so asking a question about that um, is actually helpful. Yeah. And if, if it seems uh, confusing to to explain a task, uh, you might consider also doing a demo. So I'll often do this if, you know, the students need to, I don't know if it's something other than maybe like a fill in the blank, you know, something that maybe breaks classroom tradition a little bit more. Like I want them to go stand up and do something that's taped to the walls, or I want them to uh, interview their partner about something. Um, I create a demo of the task instead. So I show them uh, rather than tell them. Yeah. And still follow up my demo with instruction check questions because just because you've done the demo does not necessarily ensure that the students fully understand what they uh, need to do. Right. And just in case there's any lingering confusion, a demo is basically just a fancy way of saying an example. So you do, mm -hmm. you know, do number one together as a class or something like that. And to really get the most out of your demo, you can even elicit the answer from the students. Um, you know, you can say, all right, so for number one, for example, what do you think I would fill in the blank? Something like that. Um, and then you're getting this instant feedback from the students that they understand if they, if they get the answer correct mm -hmm. and you know you're good to go. So much more effective than just saying, do you understand? Absolutely. Um, it, also, so the, the last piece of advice uh, about instruction, it's actually Shan's going to talk to you a little bit about this is something that I struggled with a lot when I first started giving instructions. Um, 
And so to go back to the, my point about writing out your instructions, this this is a really good good way to practice that. Yeah. So. Yeah. So then the next component of giving effective instructions is that you really need to keep your language, so the amount of time you're talking, um, which we usually call teacher talk. So you as the teacher, how much you're talking. You want to keep that really low and you want to make sure you're speaking clearly and you're being very concise and efficient in your language. Um, this might sound obvious. Where I see most teachers kind of getting into trouble with this is that they want to be polite. It feels <laughs> weird to tell people what to do, especially if they're a group of adults. Um, and so I see teachers, they just want to be polite. And they say things like, okay, so now if you don't mind, what I'm going to have you do is I'm just going to have you try to fill out this exercise and don't worry if it's too hard. We're just going to try it. And I'm just going to have you try this alone first. And then don't worry because I'll have you check in pairs. And then after that, we'll go over the answers together. And it's okay if you don't get them all right. Yeah. yeah. And like, we, <laughs> I know that might've sounded a little bit silly, but we really do hear a lot yes. of that. We really do. And it's, I think partially we can chalk it up to nerves. The teacher is a bit nervous. Um, the teacher just wants to be nice and encouraging to the students, which is a really good place to be coming from. The problem is that to the students, if they are not terribly proficient in English already, right, that all just sounds like white noise. And they're forced to kind of listen to the key words. Like all the students want to know is what to do. Yep. They just want you to tell them what to do in a way that they can understand so that they can do it. And you can say that same thing, that whole paragraph that I just said can be said as simply as do this exercise, right? right. And if you're worried about sounding rude or, or too, um, too blunt, just remember that you can use your intonation to avoid that. There's yeah. a difference between saying do this exercise and okay, now do this exercise. Right. Like you can, you can bring a smile to your voice in a way that you can still use that imperative do this, read this, match this to this, um, that's still going to sound really pleasant and really friendly. Agreed. Um, and again, Lauren, you kind of brought this up earlier, but you know, some stu uh, some teachers, sorry, want to justify this kind of excessive talking by saying that it's helpful for the students to practice listening. Yeah. But instructions not. are not, <laughs> not the time to be a listening comprehension exercise. They're meant to do one thing and one thing only, which is to tell the students what to do yep. in the clearest, most effective way possible. And uh, one piece of advice that we often give new trainees, new teachers, is to uh, start your instructions with the imperative. Yes. So rather than said, you know, saying, would you, could you, would you mind doing right. or whatever, just now start gonna... with, you know, please, if you, if you feel if rude, you, feel like you can it. say please, but <laughs> now do this exercise right now write the answers or, or right. whatever the instruction is yeah your instructions should start with a verb i think if yeah. you're yeah. if you're using that sort of good level of yeah. of being concise um and i there's a bit of a balance here right so this is often called language grade by grade in this context we don't mean grade like assessment we mean grade as in like the level of difficulty of your language so there's a difference between um you know, you don't want to speak like a cave person. Like now, so, read alone. Yes, good. Like that's and go. <laughs> that's also not helpful. You want to keep your language natural, but there's a big difference between um, saying, "All right, so you know, you know, now if everybody could just jot down some answers, that'd yeah. be awesome." And then the students are like, "Jot, teacher, what is what? jot?" <laughs> uh, right. Versus write down your answers. Yeah. Um, good. So that is. Our last sort of instructions tip about keeping your teacher talk minimal, grading your language, so keeping the difficulty level of your language 
appropriate and low. Um, but Lauren, I'm actually realizing I think we forgot one more thing in our sort of planning of this episode to talk about, which is something we like to call task before text. Oh, true. <laughs> um, this means in the context of giving instructions, basically that you want to give all of your instructions and ask those ICQs, do those demos that Lauren mentioned before you hand the students the actual activity. And you might ask why, but there's actually a really, really good reason why. Yep. Imagine you're you know, in a lecture wherever you are and someone has just handed you a piece of paper. What do you do? Right. First thing you want to do is look at it, read and it. And you're not paying attention to the person who's speaking anymore. Exactly. So as a teacher, you want to maintain control of where the student's attention is as much as possible, whether it's on you or on the activity itself. Um, and so by hanging on to that exercise, not passing it out until after you've given all the instructions, you can ensure that the students are paying attention to you and then they're not looking at the activity until you give it to them. Yeah, that's really, really great advice. So what you want to do is something that we often call lighthousing. I know we're throwing a lot of terminology at you. Um, go get a notebook and <laughs> listen to this episode again if you need to and take some notes. But um, lighthousing, imagine a lighthouse, right? There's kind of that light goes back and forth. Everybody can see. Um, so hold the activity facing the students so they can see it. Like hold up the worksheet so that it's facing the students at about chest level. Um, and kind of, you can like turn just yeah. slightly back and forth so you can make sure each of the students can see what you're referring to as you're giving the instructions right. about it. So as you're giving instructions, that way the students are looking at the exercise because you're holding it in front of them, but they're still looking at you. They're not looking down at their desks. Right. Um, and of course they're not going to be able to read everything that's on the activity. So if you feel like there's something you need to show them, like you want to do number one together and they really need to see it put it on the board before yeah. you give instructions so they can see it on the board and their attention is still upwards towards you. Right. Great. Yeah. Another thing, actually, that reminded me. So a little trick that I have is if you're going to hold on to those papers anyway and not give them to your students until after you've given instructions, uh, one trick that I have is writing my instructions on the back mm. of the handouts mm -hmm. and putting them on, putting it on like a sticky note. So as I'm lighthousing, I'm holding these papers in front of me, showing the students what um, they, th what I want them to do. I can actually read my instructions off the sticky note or my instruction check questions. Right. So, so smart. Yeah. So the students are looking at the front of the exercise that you're showing them. You can then sort of stealthily be looking at the back of the activity where you have your instructions written down. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> nice little, nice little tip there. Um, okay, good. So that was all about instructions. So that sort of takes us through the first micro stage, which is that instruction stage. Now we move on to the second micro stage we mentioned, which is um, the students doing the task alone. And right. so Lauren, what are you as the teacher doing at that point in terms of classroom management? So teachers uh, can sometimes feel a little bit uncomfortable in this stage, right? So you've, mm -hmm. you've, you've passed out the papers and then it's quiet and teachers get really nervous with silence. But, you know, Shannon had mentioned before, uh, the students need that time to work. So yeah. don't be afraid of the silence. Embrace the silence. Honestly, <laughs> uh, they need it. They, they need to be able to work without distraction. Uh, but one thing that you can do, actually one thing that you should be doing as, as they're uh, working is, um, alone on their their task is to monitor. So quietly walk around the classroom and look at what the students are doing. Make sure that they're on task and they're not struggling, that each of them has started the activity and is not struggling um, to start. 
Um, try and do this without interfering. Don't get so close that they think they can start asking you a lot of questions unless needed. Um, students can be, some students can be a bit teacher dependent. So you, you really do need to know the balance here about getting too close to them, you know, so that they start asking you to help them with every single answer on the page or just making sure that you're monitoring to make sure that everyone's on task, everyone's doing mm -hmm. what they are supposed to be doing. Um, if, uh, so I would, I would say monitor, like physically walk around the classroom for many classroom activities, like where the students are focused on a fill on in the blank activity or something like that. The one time I do say it's maybe not the best to monitor like that, like actually walking, you know, through the classroom, through the students is during a listening task. Mm -hmm. It can be really distracting if the teacher is walking around and students are trying to listen and answer questions at the same time, hard enough as it is. So what I would do is still say, I still say monitor, actively monitor, but with your eyes. So make sure you stand at a, in a place in the classroom where you can see that the students are on task, that they're writing something down. Make sure that you have a good gauge, you know, of uh, who is answering and who you might need to listen again, for example. Right. But so I would say the one exception to physical monitoring would be during a listening task. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and I would say when teachers first hear about this monitoring, like when we when we train teachers to do this in teacher training courses, they often do it and it but at first it's kind of rote it's like okay I'm walking around and looking at the students papers because you told me I was supposed to and I know that can feel a bit awkward but I think it helps if you go in monitoring with purpose so don't just look because you know you're supposed to but what are you looking for right things you can be looking for like Lauren said you know look to see that there's not somebody who just hasn't really started yet or who is just blatantly doing the exercise wrong because they misunderstood the instructions. This is kind of like your final sort of safety net to make sure that your instructions were clear to monitor and check early on in the activity that the students are actually doing what you want them to be doing. Um, you can also be looking for how far along everybody is on the task. Do you have mm -hmm. one student who's almost done, one student who's only on number three, and then how are you going to handle that? Yeah, I actually have a really good monitoring story. I was <laughs> uh, I was teaching in Atlanta one time, and uh, I had a, a, a group of pre-intermediate students, and that I had set up, you know, the task of instructions. Everyone had started, and so I started started monitoring. And it was strange because one of the women in my class, who was quite strong and really um, a real like really enthusiastic learner, I would say, um, wasn't doing the task, and it was shocking and so you know I sort of bent down and whispered you know is everything okay are you you know do you you know do you need help doing the first one and she said no I, kn I know I know what I'm doing um, I'm answering in my head and I said I'd really prefer you to write down the answers so we can go over them when you're done and she said well I didn't bring a pencil to class today I said, oh, well, you can use my pen. She said, oh, no, 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 I have a pen. I don't have a pencil. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't understand. She said, I like to do my work in pencil because if I make a mistake, I can erase it. And I would never have known that that was the issue had I not been monitoring mm -hmm. her. Um, and I said, well, that's there's a really easy solution. You know, got her a pencil, gave her a pencil, and it was fine. Um, you know, and so... Uh, Monitoring also helps us engage with our students a little bit if they, they do need that little, you know, you don't know. I mean, you don't know what a person's 
problem is. Um, and we could have gone through the entire task, you know, and started going over the answers and she would not have had anything written down on her, on her right. paper. Yeah. So really good to be able to catch those things. Yeah. And it's a way of being aware of what your students are doing and what your students may need. Um, candidates on CELTA courses often also ask me how to manage pace and timing in a lesson. Like typically after they see a demo lesson, that's one of the first questions they have is, but how do you manage the pace like that? Like how do you keep such a nice control of the timing? And I would say, this is it. Yeah, It's monitoring. Um, Because this is how I know whether the time I've set aside for a particular activity is enough, if it needs to be longer, if it needs to be shorter, because I'm looking at how far along the students are and then I can make decisions accordingly if I need to extend it if I need to cut it short I don't know how you can monitor um, or how you can control your pace and timing of the lesson without monitoring monitoring. like it's essential absolutely yeah good um yeah so uh we've talked a lot about uh what to do when the students are working individually but Shannon's going to talk to you a little bit more about um uh, what to do when you want the students to not work individually. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we've said it's helpful if it's some kind of um, concentration task, like a worksheet, excuse me, or something like that, where the students are working alone first. And then we said the third micro stage, that sort of delicious part of the burger is where the students are working in pairs. Um, so that's a really common way to have the students check their answers is just with one other person. So put them in pairs, check with your partner. But that's not the only other um, sort of configuration of students we can have in the classroom. And something that's important to think about is often what we call interaction patterns. So that's, a again, like sort of a fancy way of saying who is speaking to whom. Um, so one interaction pattern is what's often called plenary or whole class. So that's when the teacher is addressing the students or the students, you know, one by one are speaking in front of the class to the teacher. Um, so it's a whole class interaction and that's what's going to happen during instructions and during the fourth micro stage, that whole class feedback going over the answers stage. Um, then we have the pair check. So that's another interaction pattern. You can have groups of two students in pairs. But you can also have bigger groups, like groups of three or four. Um, you can also have what we call a mingle, where all the students are standing up and walking around and talking to each other. That would be like the interaction pattern at a cocktail party, for example. Okay. Everyone's walking yeah. around and, and mingling. Um, and you want a variety of these in your classroom. This is another way to ensure that your lesson is student-centered. If the only interaction pattern you have throughout your whole lesson is that plenary whole class um, interaction pattern, that's an indication that the lesson is too teacher-fronted, that the students are not getting enough of an opportunity to speak and to interact with each other and to really engage with the material. So you want to think about at every stage and at every micro stage, what does the interaction pattern in the room look like? Um, So typically the if you're following the task cycle, you're going to see a pattern stage after stage. You're going to first see um, a plenary or teacher to student, so whole class interaction pattern. Then you're going to see just a student working alone, then student to student for the pair check, and then whole class teacher to student again. And those are those four micro stages that we've spoken about, the instructions, work alone, pair check, feedback. And you should see those repeated over and over in your lesson plan. If you do see that, that's a good indication that you're using the task cycle effectively. However, near the end of a lesson um, in particular, maybe you have a more interactive practice activity or you want a group discussion, 
it could be a nice idea to put the students in bigger groups to sort of, I don't know, liven things up a little bit, mm-hmm. let the students interact with different people. Um, so in that case, you might put students in groups of three or groups of four. Something to keep in mind is that the bigger the group, the less talking time each individual student gets. Correct. So that's one big reason why we don't want things to be in that whole class pattern all the time. Because if you have a class of 15 students, right, one person can be talking at a time in a whole class interaction. Right. Assuming you're managing the classroom effectively and it's not just chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means that only one in 15 students is ever getting to communicate at a time. Versus if you put the students in pairs, now you've got, of course I chose an odd number, but now you've got seven people or eight people talking at the same time. Um, If you put the students in groups of, what, three, you've got five people talking at the same time. This is me trying to do math. Terrifying. Um, (laughs) This is not a math podcast. (laughs) Right? Oh, God, no. Uh, So the problem is, right, the bigger the group, the less time each individual student gets to talk, and your goal should be more or less to let each individual student talk as much as possible yeah. in your lesson. If you've noticed, Shannon's saying a lot um, that she's putting students into pairs and putting students into groups yeah. of threes and fours. Be uh, very uh, plan that as part of your lesson. Put your students in pairs. You know, yeah. don't don't just say find a partner because be then it's just like it. Be intentional. That's the word. For some reason, can't think of words today. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, be intentional about it because. Uh, it takes forever for students to find a partner or like, you know, there's someone left out and they don't have a partner and it's awkward. Like just put them into pairs quickly, you know, or into small yeah. groups quickly. You can number them off one, two, one, two, or you know, however right. one does that. But but definitely plan that in advance. Yeah, that's a really yeah. good point. It sounds so simple. Um, you think as a new teacher, oh yeah, and then I'll just put them in groups of three, blah, 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 you know, in your planning process. But if you haven't actually thought of how you're going to do that, how you're going to have them number off, or if you're just going to say, okay, you three, you three, you three, yeah. you want that in your head going yeah. into it. And that's fine if you just want to count, you know, you want to group them as they're sitting, you three, you three, you three, that's fine. Unless you want to mix them up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then just some, you know, some things to consider. You can use numbers, letters, colors to get them uh, yeah. in various groups of, of three or four as you're going to do it. Yep. Good. So moral of this um, this tip is basically just make sure you're varying your interaction patterns and think about what kind of interaction pattern might work best for that particular activity. Obviously, giving instructions and going over the answers needs to be in whole class because you want all of the students to be getting all of that information at the same time. Otherwise, that's going to be chaos. It's going to be inefficient. Um, for something as simple as a pair check, like just it's called a pair check, obviously, but just for having students compare their answers to a worksheet, probably not worth the time it would take to put them in bigger groups. You probably just want them in twos because you just want them to have a quick chance to compare answers and move on. But for more communicative activities, like for your practice activities, um, productive tasks, Mm -hmm. like big discussions, debates, things like that, um, then groups of more like three, four, even five could be appropriate. Yeah, especially if you are teaching um, in a classroom uh, uh, where students are from different countries, it's a really great opportunity to mix the groups up a little bit, be intentional about putting a student, you know, students from different parts of the world in one group so they get a different perspective. Yeah, and I'm thinking now that we could probably do like a whole other part of an episode on mingling and what kind of activities you can use that for and how to make it work. So maybe we'll hold off on that for now. Yeah. Um, Good. Okay. So that is what you want to think about in terms of 
students working together. And that brings us to then our final micro stage, which is that whole class feedback stage. So Lauren, what are some things teachers should know there? Great. So whole class feedback, just like Shannon said, a fancy way of uh, saying going over the answers. Um, Mm -hmm. So the first thing is that you want to come up with a plan about how you're going to go over the answers before you go over the answers. I think we talked about this uh, in one of our previous podcasts. Yeah, maybe one of the one grammar of the planning, ones. planning for grammar yeah. lessons yeah, but, came up a bit. Yeah, it, it bears repeating. Really go into it with a plan. Don't just have in your lesson plan like, oh, you know, we're going to go over the answers. That doesn't really, uh, that doesn't say how. Um, so you want to have a plan, whether it's, you know, putting the answers on the board or um, asking students for the answers. So let's say uh, that you're going to do a, a combination of both. Uh, it's a grammar exercise. I think for grammar exercises, it's really good to get the answers on the board so that it reinforces things like spelling and and it cuts down a, l- a little bit on, on the chaos. Like you've gotten to number five and someone raises their hand and says, teacher, what was number one? You know. So if it's on the board, it, it helps a little bit. Regardless of how you're, you've chosen to go over your answers, what you want to do going over your answers is to nominate students by name. Uh, it's really uh, important first to, then to uh, know your students' names. <laughs> uh, so, so if it's your first classes, just make sure they have like you know a name on their desk or something. But using the students' names uh, in the nominating uh, process is really important. Um, and what this does is a couple of things. First of all, so let, let's say theoretically I want the answer to number one, and I just say, okay, class, so what's the answer to number one? What are the two options there? Either everyone's going to answer at the same time and I can't hear the answer, or no one's going to answer, mm-hmm. and that doesn't help either. Or the same strongest student in the class is going to answer yeah, every single time. Exactly, and that's and so that brings me to that point too: is that I was always the student in in school who had the answers. I did, and I, you know, but I would never volunteer them. Um, I just wasn't the kind of person I just didn't, I don't know if it was like, I didn't want to feel like I was showing off or something like that, but I never volunteered answers unless called on. Um, and our students to give everyone equal opportunity to participate in whole class feedback by nominating them by name. And so what you can say is like, uh, number one, Lauren, you know, or Lauren, number one, whatever, um, and have them give you the answer. Uh, in this case, the example that I was using of a grammar uh, exercise, then you can write the answer on the board. Yeah. And here's the thing. I really like the, the way you just gave the example, um, which was saying, you know, Lauren, number one, Roberto, number two, whatever. Um, keep in mind that this brings me back to my tip about minimizing your teacher talk. Yes. You do not need to read the entire question oh, out loud. Please don't read the whole question out loud. <laughs> they have it in front of them. They have it on the worksheet in front of them. There's no reason for you to say, you know, number one, what's the present perfect form of blah, 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 blah. Yeah. No need. It just increases your teacher talk and it just brings the pace down. Way down. And you need time for other stuff in class. Like exactly. you don't need to waste it by reading what they have in front of them for sure. You also don't need the students to read the question out loud. I've seen students yeah. give the answer, yeah. you know, number one, and the student says B. No, no, no. Read the whole definition. Yeah. Not necessary. Not necessary that- also because reading out loud is not, a, you know, on the top of our students' priority list of skills that they want to acquire in our class. No, and it <laughs> takes forever. And again, every single student has that on the worksheet in front of them. They can see yeah, it. Exactly. Nobody needs to read it out That's loud. Absolutely. So absolutely just, agree. yeah, totally fine. Nominate the student so-and-so, number one. 
And then whatever the answer is, is all the student should need to say. So you're doing that, but imagine you're doing this. And uh, so Shannon, has it ever happened to you that like, okay, so you've said Roberto, whatever, number two, and the student's giving you the wrong answer. Yeah. So what happens? That can happen. And okay, a couple things to think about with that. First of all, if, if you're monitoring effectively, that brings us back to our sort of previous tip. If you're monitoring closely, sometimes you can preempt that yep. because you can actually be noticing who has correct answers for which questions. And if you do have a student who's a little bit shy or doesn't participate a lot, maybe you want to purposely choose that student for an answer you know they have right as a nice confidence boost. Um, if you're not able to do that, and you might not be able to do that for every question, it does sometimes happen that the student is going to give the wrong answer. Yep. Um, this is another reason the pair check is beneficial. It hopefully will make that sort of less painful. Like if the student has checked the answer with his or her partner, that might lower the possibility for giving the wrong answer. Or maybe that makes the student feel better because they've discussed the wrong answer with their partner and at least they know they're not the only one who didn't get it right. Yeah, agreed. Um, but let's say, yeah, we get there. So our hypothetical Roberto has given the wrong answer. Sorry, Roberto. And, uh, and Lauren, how would you handle that? So often I'll just pause and I'll say, so I think it's really important in this case to be very clear. Don't hedge like, well, actually, oh, good job. But no, like students need to know whether an answer is right or wrong. Just yeah. say, no, can anyone help? No, can it, does anyone else have another answer? And I think just keeping your voice light there, non-confrontational, usually students are pretty okay, you know, if they, yeah. if they don't get the right answer because like Shannon said, they've likely discussed it with, with their partner. Another good technique sort of uh uh moves into our our last little bit of um advice about uh going over the answers mm, yeah so what i would do in this case is i might say so like so for example if the the grammar question was like um uh, yesterday I went to the store sorry for my lame example yesterday i went to the store but the student gives the the answer yesterday i goed to the store, and I know that's wrong, I might say out loud, hmm, yesterday you goed to the store, trying not to sound too, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Shannon? Patronizing. Thank you. See, Shannon, okay. Shannon with the vocabulary today. Uh, okay. patronizing. I can't math, you can't speak. We're, <laughs> it's, it's fine. We're quite the team. Super glad I'm doing a podcast <laughs> today. Great. Uh, patronizing, right. But like you, using that that technique of, of echoing a student's um, in incorrect answer is sometimes useful for them to hear it. So I would say, I would pause, nicely say, mm, yesterday you goed to the store. Mm. And then I might like indicate to another student in, in the room, you know, to give me the correct answer. Oh, yes. And then they say, no, it's went. Yesterday I went to the store. Good. So it leads me into my next bit of advice. I find echoing students incorrect answers to be a very effective way of helping them self or giving them a chance to self-correct yeah some of them just need to hear it said incorrectly in order to be given the chance to correct yeah so that being said if we have established that echoing a student's incorrect answer is effective or can be effective my last bit of advice is do not echo the correct answers yes and by echoing just in case it's unclear we mean repeating back exactly what the student just said they like don't yes exactly they don't need to hear it again a simple yes is fine right now it's a it, excuse me it's, it can be a hard um habit to break because i think that 
with native speakers, we tend to echo each other in conversation. It's almost like a verbal confirmation that I've understood what you, what you said. But when going over the answers, it's just a time waster. The students don't need to hear the correct thing repeated back to them. They just need a confirmation that their answer is correct or incorrect. Right. And I don't actually think as, as native speakers in normal conversation, we echo that much. Yeah. I think we echo sometimes to show surprise uh, true. Um, or disbelief or to confirm that we heard correctly. But other than that, I don't think we echo very much. Yeah. Like, just as a little example, Lauren, what did you do yesterday? Yeah. You can say I went to the yeah. store if you want. Sure. Uh, <laughs> lame. I went to the store. You went to the store. Oh, and did you buy anything? Right, which is weird, right? And let, if, but however, if I said like, oh, I went skydiving. You went skydiving? Yeah, so then that shows the price. But the intonation is different. Right. So, but, so point taken, right? But uh, when going over the answers, no need. I would say yeah. avoid echoing students' correct answers. Yes. And Lauren, I'm going to ask you the question that so many candidates ask us so you can... Um, say how we would answer it but what if the student said the answer so quietly that I'm afraid the other students didn't hear it so shouldn't I echo so I can make sure everybody heard or perhaps we could just ask them to repeat themselves and give them the opportunity to share the answer again yes but I still don't understand what's so bad about echoing like I'm just saying the answer that the student said I'm encouraging them by repeating their correct answer so if if our class of students is so used to us echoing a quiet student's answer, then they no longer listen to that quiet student. It doesn't give them, doesn't give that student the opportunity to, to have a voice in class. The students are just going to look directly at us. This happens with accents too. Like mm-hmm. if you teach in a class uh, like we do here in the U.S., that where students are from all over the world, at the beginning of the term, they're not yet used to each other's accents in English. And so they sometimes look to the, to the teacher for guidance. But hearing you repeat it in your whatever accent you have doesn't help them understand each other. And aren't we trying to foster sort, some sort of like interdependence in our classroom yeah. rather than dependence on us? Exactly. The dream in the classroom is that your students are engaged with each other and communicating with each other um, so that they're getting an opportunity to talk and learn from lots of different people. So by echoing, you're basically telling them that they don't need to listen to each other. They only need to listen to you as the teacher. Yeah. So just to sort of give a summary of when echoing is okay and when it's not, as Lauren said earlier, if you're echoing a student's incorrect answer with that sort of rising, you know, questioning intonation, you go to the store. Um, you can think of that if it helps as correct-echoing. Oh, I like it. <laughs> correcting by echoing. So correct-echoing is okay. I'm dying. <laughs> I know Shannon really well. I've never heard her use that You've one before. You've never heard her use that? No, I'm dying. This is another one of my fun. Oh my goodness. Shannon and Fun teaching puns. Teaching puns. <laughs> oh, okay. Correct-echoing. Here we never go. Never gets old, right? Uh, so correct-echoing equals good. <laughs> That's okay to, to echo an incorrect answer with the intention of helping the student or the other students to correct it. Um, just echoing, so just straight up echoing a student's correct answer, not what you want to do. In that case, Mm -hmm. if you couldn't hear the student or you felt like the other students couldn't hear, ask the student to speak up. Good. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Yeah. (laughs) So I think that brings us to the end of our tips for the day. Yeah. Shall we run over just a quick summary? Yeah. Let's. Um, so classroom management techniques that we've talked about today, the first big one, which is kind of the Um, underlying strategy for all of this is what we call the task cycle or the micro stages. So those four steps, things you want to do in every activity are 
Number one, give instructions. Um, and we talked about using instruction check questions and demos, making sure you're anchored in that stage. Um, number two was the students do the task alone, right. during which time you should be monitoring, Good. checking their progress. Yep. Micro stage number three, the students check in pairs um, to help build their confidence, increase student-to-student interaction and interactive learning. And then the final one was whole class feedback. Right. Go over the answers. answers. <laughs> Correcting versus <laughs> not make sure to nominate. Yes, right. And, you know, and if all of this is, sounds uh, confusing, overwhelming, uh, go back and listen again. Like Shannon said, you know, take out a notebook, take some notes. I I didn't have a Celta when I first started teaching uh, twenty years ago. I don't know if you could hear that. I whispered it. Um, <laughs> twenty years ago, I didn't have a Celta, and I, uh, you know, I figured it out a lot. I think in the classroom by trial and error, and this I. I just didn't know. I didn't know it could be so easy that there was this like formula. There's a formula. Um, And so if you don't know it, you know, try to incorporate these elements into your classroom little by little. If, if, you know, you're worried that you're going to mess something up, really great place is to start with the task cycle for sure. Definitely. If you haven't tried it before, if you haven't, even if you haven't implemented part of it, you know, like you haven't done pair checks before after each activity, just try it. Just yeah. trust us. Just blindly trust us for a second yeah. <laughs> and try it. Yeah. And I think you'll be surprised at the result. It really brings up the energy in the room. It really brings up students' confidence. And it will get to the point where if you forget to do it, you'll feel it because you'll ask the students for the first answer and feedback. If you jump right from from that individual work yep. to the whole class feedback, you'll ask the students and there's this like weird kind of hesitation or something. There's like a the atmosphere is different. Having that pair check makes them, for whatever reason, so much more ready to engage in those answers. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So I think that yeah. wraps it up for this episode. This is episode 12 already. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're so happy to have you listening. Thank you so much. And we would seriously love to hear from you. Um, we love making these episodes and getting to connect with you in this way. But, you know, we're not always sure what people think about them about yeah. what we're saying or you know if you're trying any of this stuff if you find it helpful um so definitely we would love to have you leave us a comment send us an email questions info at tevilhorizons.com if there's something you want us to talk about in an episode we would love to have you let us know because we Absolutely. would be happy to do an episode on it yeah and uh, again really thanks for joining us we are so happy to be able to do what we love and share um share all of these uh, tips that we've picked up along the way with you. Um, so, uh, you know, if you like us, keep on listening and uh, connect with us on social media. We'd love to, we'd love to interact with you more. Yeah. All right. Until next week. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening. Your support means so much to us. Feel free to leave a comment below if you enjoyed this and let us know what you want to hear about in upcoming episodes. If you know other teachers and travelers, we'd love for you to share this podcast with them too. And tune in this coming Tuesday for our next episode. Until then, you can find us at teflhorizons.com. Let's keep making this big world smaller by expanding horizons. Bye.